Welcome to Aleph Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today is a special podcast recording that we did before the coronavirus pandemic. It discusses a new education bill that changes some certain rules. This conversation is still extremely important for state legislators and state policy across the country, and we wanted to make sure that you still hear it today. Thank you. Welcome to Alec Across the States. Today, we are actually at the U.S. Department of Education recording our podcast with Jim Blue, who's the Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development at the U.S. Department of Education. Jim, thank you so much for not only coming on the podcast, but also for hosting us here in Washington, D.C. Pleased to see you. Yes, of course. And we also have Sherry Street, Alex's own Vice President of Policy Advancement, joining us on the podcast, who has worked tirelessly over her storied career on education reform and education policy. So Sherry, thank you so much for sitting down on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you, Jim. Great to to see see you. Yes. So Jim, you've been working to enhance education choice for a long time at uh, various organizations and levels of government. So, you know, our members are really excited about this. Thank you for making the time for it. They're increasingly caring about education choice. We've actually covered this topic extensively at our States and Nation Policy Summit in December. We had Secretary DeVos speak from the main stage. We had a school superintendent panel, and we also had a discussion covering civics and education and what that looks like moving forward. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, you know, your long career fighting for education choice, why you've done it and why it's so important to you? Sure. I've been at this almost as long as Sherry Street. Um, (laughs) Just, I think I started a a few years after you did. Um, And I think our motivation was the same one. We looked across the country and we saw that there were a lot of communities that were not educating their children. Sherry was based in Milwaukee. I worked for an organization that was based there as well. And we saw school choice as an opportunity to dramatically improve the outcomes that students were receiving uh, or achieving. And where we saw school choice being offered, particularly in low-income communities, uh, we were seeing tremendous gains. And we actually still see that today. There is some pushback from the establishment, from the people who are benefiting from the current system. So that is, you know, this has been a long battle. Uh, You asked about my background. Uh, For years, Secretary DeVos and I focused on the states. Mm -hmm. I can, I think I can honestly (laughs) say neither of us ever expected to be at the Federal (laughs) Department of Education. But Um, we're glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Others are not so happy. Um, (laughs) But um, we we're working there because that's where the action is. You know, 90 plus percent of the money comes from state and local government. Probably more of the policy emanates from there. Uh, So it's been a shift for us to come to Washington, D.C., to figure out a way to help the people who are trying to improve education at states and local districts rather than try and do it ourselves. And that's been a major shift for us personally, but it's also been a shift for Washington. And I'm, as we talk later about the block grant, I'll explain that to you. There's the mentality that you have to do it from the federal government here. And we are trying to shatter that and move power to states and local governments, as well as to the parents, the group that we've been focused on for 25 years. Yeah. I mean, and that's 
what is so important and why our state legislators as ALEC members, why they're so interested in, in hearing from you, Jim, frankly, because, you know, they're all fighting tirelessly at the state level for good, sound policy. And they're so excited to see you and Secretary DeVos doing that at the federal level. Um, Sherry, can you talk to us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the budget proposal? So Alec is actually very supportive of part and uh, most of the budget uh, proposal as it came out. Can you talk to our listeners, maybe who aren't familiar with the budget proposal, and give them a quick little download on it? Well, actually, Alec has applauded the administration and the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education. Uh, as you know, we are all about limited government, free markets, and federalism. And so the uh, budget proposal includes the block grants that you just mentioned, and that's redirecting funds back to the states closest to home. And so I wondered, Jim, if you could talk to us a little bit about how these decentralization policies will advance educational opportunities. Yeah. So let me take a moment to make to frame up this discussion. The block grant includes 29 programs. Some are formula grants, some are competitive grants, combines them all together and would deliver money to the states and then through the states to local districts using what is called the Title I formulas. There are three, but so it ends up being Title I shares. What's important to first point out is what it does not include. And a lot of people got confused because we started we and others started describing it in, in broad terms. It does not include any of the IDEA or Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Uh, that money will continue to flow to states as it does now. Most of that is through a formula, right? It also doesn't include any of the Perkins 5 or career and technical education money. And that's a really important area for this administration because we're wanting to make sure that all students have multiple pathways. Uh, for many years, and Sherry, and I think you and I were actually guilty of this, we only talked about getting kids to college. It is clear now that uh, we need to have more pathways than that. And there are a lot of low-cost career and technical uh, degrees that people can get that are economically productive. So it's it's for pretty much everything else other than those things. Those programs generate uh, a lot of work here at the department, but that is nothing compared to the amount of work they create out in the States. There's just a lot of movement from... There, 20 of those programs, of those 29, are competitive grant programs, which means we spend a lot of time designing a program. And as you know, I come out of philanthropy, so I have some insights in how you do that. And I can tell you the federal government makes it much more complicated than a foundation makes it. So you have literally hundreds of people in here working around designing competitive grant programs. They then throw out a competitive grant proposal and every state, every district then spends hours and hours trying to get that grant. And at the end of the day, only a small portion of them do. And so our, our philosophy was if we really want to empower people on, out in the field, not in D.C., but in the field, what we need to do is simply give them money without all the strings and all the accounting and all the fury around trying to get one of these grants. So that's the general principle here. It, the money pretty much will flow automatically to local districts. The formula 
is based on disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged children. And so the money then necessarily flows to those districts that have more lower income students. Uh, And that's, of course, people have to remember this. The federal government was not created, they didn't have a federal role created to help every kid in this country. That's why we're only 7% of the money. We are focused very clearly on students with disabilities, about half that amount, and these economically disadvantaged students. You come alongside them. That's what the 1965 Act said. That's why many people describe it as a Civil Rights Act, because it was coming alongside states to help them with the most difficult to educate children in our society. Jim, you were talking earlier about the block grants and how they get directed towards states. You know, there are some people who are worried, let's say, and they're thinking that, you know, for example, a charter school, their funding might be able to be diverted elsewhere by a state. What would you respond to someone making that argument? Yeah. So I, I've needed to talk about this a lot. Uh, one of the 29 programs is what's called the Charter School Program. It is a program that helps charter schools get their start. It's not continuous funding. It's usually for the first three years, extra money so they can get up and running. It's been very important to the charter school world uh, because they're operating on 70 cents on the dollar. Right? So most charter schools around the country are not on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. So they need that extra money to get started. And by the way, once they do, they're able to operate on 70 cents mm-hmm. on the dollar. Um, we don't think that's fair. We don't think that's moral. We think all children should be treated with as if the same value. And so if it, you know, if a district school gets $20,000 per kid, which many of them do, then we think the charter school should as well. But for now, we're trying to help level the playing field as they get started. What people need to understand, and I think your, leg- your particularly your legislatures will understand, the budget process in D.C. requires us to put together a proposal that Congress then immediately ignores. Mm. We were trying to start a conversation to encourage them to move to the block grant. Sure. And we said, we're so serious about this. We're adding the $440 million that they appropriated last time into our block grant because we fundamentally believe states and local governments should embrace the most successful education reform this country has ever seen. And I'm talking about charter schools. Mm. Across the country, they're showing that they're performing better, turning around hundreds of lives, thousands of lives, and there's a million people on the waiting list because they want to get into the charter schools. Now, I appreciate the charter school advocate's perspective, which is if you happen to be in a state where the teacher unions are so powerful that they're shutting down charter schools, well, this is a threat to them. They're thinking they're no longer going to get the money. Our position on this is, you know what? We've got to move this battle into the streets. You cannot rely on the federal government. If you happen to be the governor of California and you don't think there should be any more charter schools, you need to be hearing from the teachers who want to be in charter schools and from the families and students. You should not be relying on Betsy DeVos to get your charter schools done for you. So that is our our point of view on it. 
recognizing we're in an election year, we're going to have a continuing resolution. Again, your audience will understand that. <laughs> um, but so that people, when we've been criticized for abandoning charter schools, like, come on. And we're talking about Betsy DeVos and for, if you know, we don't know each other well, but I spent a decade building up the charter school sector for the Walton Family Foundation, right? And so, yeah, I think our credentials are pretty good in this space. And I always assure our, our friends in the charter school world that when it comes push to shove on the Hill, we're going to be standing right alongside them to make sure the charter school program gets the allocations that we think are some of the most effective work this department does. Well, I think that explanation is uh, what our our lawmakers want to hear, our members, because I'm sure they'll be hearing these same concerns in their district. So thank you for that. Jim. Yeah. Yeah, that... You know, there isn't, you know, for every blue state where the teacher unions pretty much control what's going on politically, there are several red states where governors have come to the secretary and said, thank you, because the way we've organized the block grant, they're able to do more charter school startups. You can set aside a lot of your money using it for school improvement, and charter schools are the best strategy we've yet to see on that. Well, I had one more question uh, before that. I wanted to ask you, Jim, I mean, uh, in the media, we've heard a lot about the Freedom uh, Scholarship, and we've heard a lot about the block grants. Are there any other initiatives in this proposal that you think our lawmakers would want to know about? Yeah, and one I alluded to earlier, and it is the almost billion dollars that we're adding to career and technical education. Again, we're not sure that Congress has an appetite for that right now, but we actually believe that they had, they changed the law about two years ago to force states to go through a needs assessment and to come forward with a real plan about how they're going to do career and technical education aligned with their workforce needs. Those plans are starting to come in. They're looking good. We'd like to infuse some money to really build up that part of the sector. Um, you know, you have to keep these things in context. $900 million, a billion dollars into that. Well, it's a huge increase for what we do in CT. Right now, it's a very small portion of what we do in the department. Um, so we have roughly a $70 billion budget. 40% of that is for post-secondary work. But of that other percent, only... Three billion now would go to CT. So it's still there's still a lot more growth opportunities there, but it's uh, definitely a step in the right direction. I would feel. I would agree with that. Yes, and step in the right directions are what we focus on. Those are the real solutions. Sometimes they need to take to move forward. So the last section we have here for our podcast is what we're going to be calling "What's Next." In the 90s, there was a lot of talk about preparing American students for the 21st century. Um, and with new innovative education methods in mind, what does the future of education reform look like? What does education reform look like maybe for the 22nd century? Yeah. So look, we have a huge portion of our population that we're not educating. And it's so interesting because in the past we've had federal secretaries of education who want to be cheerleaders for the incremental improvements. And so you would have thought over the last two decades, we've had major improvements. Um, we have a secretary now who wants to be much more realistic about what's happening. Well, let me just give you one statistic that I hope will 
help people appreciate. We have lots of statistics about the underperformance of our education system. But we recently got what's called the report card, the nation's report card, the National Assessment for Educational Progress. Um, it does fourth graders and eighth graders in math and reading. I'll just focus for a minute on the eighth grade reading scores, because I think most people believe that if you're reading in the eighth grade, you have a pretty good glide path from there. It turns out that about 25% of our students are scoring below basic. I wish they would give these like ABC grades. They don't. But below basic is defined as you cannot read a basic grade level assignment. They're essentially illiterate in the eighth grade. That 25% has persisted for 20 years. So there are a lot of students who, as we used to say, are being left behind. Um, I, I give you all that context. I mean, it's actually so much worse in low-income communities. It's almost half. It's a little less than half. So that is why the secretary and I have focused on those communities our entire careers, right? When you start to take the problem apart, the technology is there to meet every child where they are, right? And yet we still have a factory model that treats every kid like they're coming into kindergarten with the same level of reading scores and just marching along the assembly line until they come out. Anybody who's been in a school knows that's not what's happening, right? Um, and some people say, well, the problem is we have to start the assembly line earlier. And I might even agree with that, but I don't want to ever have kids on an assembly line. Uh, if you want to start kids earlier, then you still have to approach them, diagnose, if you will, where they are, what their skill set is, and develop individual learning for each one of them based on their passions, based on their skills, and their God-given potential. And we will have a system someday that does that, and they will look back at what we've done for the last 50 years and think we were barbarians. We really need to change. And you cannot get there if you don't give every family choice about where their students go, right? And by the way, that's taken for granted in affluent communities today. Because if you if your kid's not being served by the local public school, you move them somewhere, sometimes geographically, sometimes to a private school. Again, the technology is already evolving where we can literally come alongside every family, let them have several quality choices, not just one or two, we mean several, and empower them to figure out the right pathway so that every child in this country gets a great education. So that's the 22nd century. Frankly, I hope it comes a lot before then. <laughs> Sherry, here, what do you here. think? What's, what's coming next for the future of education reform, perhaps from the state perspective? Well, I hope that what Jim just described is true because he's right. I've, I've known Jim since the early, mid-90s, and um, he's right. The landscape hasn't changed for low-income kids very much in that time period, hard as we've all worked. But I was, more than anything, I think there are opportunities. We were talking to some folks in Texas that are operating uh, micro-schools in rural areas when they're 
So there are, I think, engaging the broader community. And you're right about the tech entrepreneurs. And they're willing to do it. That's the thing I'm most pleased about, that they're willing to step in and, and help schools and help children in our communities. So I will share your dream. It's Thank you for your passion. It's palpable. It really is. <laughs> We're still passionate after all these years. <laughs> after all these years. Yeah. Well, that does bring us to the end of our segment today. It's been awesome. I've been sitting down with our Vice President of Policy Advancement here at Alex Sherry Street, and then also beaming straight to you from Washington, D.C. here at the Department of Education. I've been sitting down with Jim Blue, the Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development. Thank you both for taking some time today on the podcast. My pleasure. Yes. And with that, please email across the states at alec.org. If you are interested in being featured on the Alec Across the States podcast, we would love to feature your work and what you're working on. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alex States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.